More than 6.6 million people worldwide and counting have died of COVID. That's more than 1 million Americans. Now, please understand what that means. These were all people who loved and were loved. Now, here comes the grim factoid. If we held a moment of silence for every American who died of COVID, it would take nearly two years at a rate of 24 hours a day to cover every name. Now, I have to say, this is an extraordinary statistic. It is a grim statistic. And I'm citing that statistic because on May 11th, the CDC declared that the federal COVID-19 public health emergency has ended. And I'm saying this even before we get to our guests because there's another interesting insight about COVID that comes to us from my colleague at Religion News, Mark Silk. And he says that in a survey that just came out, the Public Religion Research Institute reports that between 2020 and 2022, the proportion of nuns, now I'm not saying nuns, N-U-N-S, not pious Christian women. I'm talking about people who claim that they have no religion. Religion, none. That proportion, that percentage jumped 3%, from 23.3% to 26.8%. This will not be on the final, don't worry. And that's the largest two-year increase registered by the Public Religion Research Institute since it began measuring these things in 2006. Well, where we are today is this is Martini Judaism. This is the Religion News Service. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. And I just want to say that I... I'm grateful to our guests, my colleagues, for sharing that statistic about those moments of silence. I, full disclosure, I actually once gave seventh grade kids in religious school a very grim assignment, which is how long would it take us to read the names of every single victim of the Shoah? That's a big one. But this is big as well. This is an insight that my colleagues, Rabbi Denise Egger and Reverend Dr. Neil G. Thomas, bring to the table in their book that just came out. In fact, the launch, official launch, is this weekend, Seven Principles for Living Bravely, Ageless Wisdom, and Comforting Faith for Weathering Life's Most Difficult Times. That's why I'm so really overjoyed to have with us today Rabbi Denise Egger, who will be retiring in just a few weeks, from her position as the rabbi, the founding rabbi of Congregation Colomy in Los Angeles, California. Now, I have to say something about Rabbi Egger. If they gave doctorates in living bravely, she would have several. She was one of the first openly gay rabbis to be ordained by the Reform Movement. She was the first gay rabbi to become president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. She has been a courageous fighter for LGBTQ rights and social justice causes, and 
She is a great lover of Israel, we have to say this, on the 75th anniversary of Israel's birth. She serves on the board of Zionists, a progressive pro-Israel advocacy organization. I am not only proud to call her my esteemed colleague, but I have to say that I am proud to call her my friend, whose wisdom and strength have both caused me to grow over the years, and I really have grown and changed as a result of my relationship with Rabbi Eger. And for that reason... I am profoundly grateful. And any friend of hers has got to be someone worth learning from. So we're welcoming Reverend Neil Thomas, who is the senior pastor of the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas, which is the world's largest progressive Christian church with a primary outreach to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. He is a prominent social leader. He's a commentator on the intersections of faith with color, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, and he is a former senior pastor of the Founders Metropolitan Community Church in Los Angeles, California. It is not every day that I get to hang out with two people (laughs) as wonderful and as cool as both of you. So welcome, Rabbi Egger, and welcome, Reverend Thomas. We're delighted to be here with you, Rabbi Salkin, and your kind words um, were my heart and As much as you have said you've grown and changed, I've grown and learned from you, my teacher, my friend, and we're just delighted to be here to talk about seven principles for living bravely today. Thank you, Rabbi, and uh, it's always good to share some space with my good friend and mentor and colleague and my rabbi, um, Rabbi Denise Eger, so um, I'm grateful for this opportunity. It's wonderful that you can be here. So here's what I want to ask you. Let's talk about your personal and professional journeys first. The book is important. We're going to talk about the principles of the book. People should go out and read the book. But we're really interested in what's undergirding all of this. So I want to hear first from the two of you. Tell us about your personal and professional journeys. How did you get to the person you are Today, I'm going to do this in reverse alphabetical order. Reverend Thomas, welcome aboard. Tell, talk to us. You know, uh, you asked a, a very big question and, and in some ways a very important question. And, you know, as preachers, we could go on and on and on about how we got to where we are. Um, but I think the truth is that, you know, all of life's circumstances have um, shaped, shaped where I am today. Um, the, the interpersonal relationships that I've found myself in, uh, the positions of, of, of pastoral leadership that I've found myself in. Um, but there's nothing more prof- profound, I think, than the, the one-on-one conversations with peoples um, whose lives have been shaped by, by faith, uh, by, by spiritual values and by spiritual principles. And, and as you, you'll discover, as, as the readers will discover, uh, both Rabbi Denise and myself share some commonalities around some of that space. Uh, specifically during the AIDS pandemic um, and through COVID-19, through the ways in which we had to lead people through these these experiences of life um, and the ways in which resilience um, and uh, hope um, and a a promise of a better future um, have found their ways into not only my life, but also into the lives of those that we get to mentor and shape for the future. Um, grew up in England, as you can probably tell from my accent, people always uh, confuse me, think I'm from East Texas. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, grew up in England, uh, raised in a Mormon tradition, uh, came out very, very young, um, 
and uh, you know, really have for the last 31 years uh, pastored three congregations, um, all of which have just impacted the way in which I view the world, the way in which I view faith, uh, the way in which I view uh, interreligious space, uh, and uh, have really shaped me into somebody who I would rather just call um, a person of the universe uh, that follows in the ways and teachings of the one I call Jesus, um, which does not necessarily mean uh, the Christianity that we view in the world today, specifically in the United States around Christian nationalism uh, and the way that it oppresses not just um, progressive peoples of faith, uh, but certainly has impacted um, other religious communities for whom I have incredible respect for. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop there um, because I think there's a lot to unpack in all of that. No, I got to say this, uh, Reverend Thomas. Number one, I've been doing a lot of reading on Christian nationalism recently, and I'm starting to feel – no, I'm not starting to feel this. I think I felt this for a while – that there's a target on my back as well. In that sense, I, I've always believed – and I learned this really from Rabbi Egger and from many of my LGBTQ colleagues and my friends whom I went to college with and – my congregants and just people that I hang out with, there is such a commonality between the LGBTQ experience in the world and the Jewish experience in the world. So, Rabbi Egger, I want to just kick this over to you for a second because I am getting back to Rabbi Th- uh, to Rabbi. Hey, I like that. Okay, Rabbi Thomas. All right, no, let's just keep it there. Rabbi <laughs> Thomas, Reverend Egger, we're good. All right, we're just gonna we're gonna just trade titles here. Uh, I am going to get back to Reverend Thomas uh, in a few seconds because I need to ask him a very big question about uh, psychogeography. That's a term I invented. So, Rabbi, you and I, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, Who were your teachers and influencers? That's a really powerful question. Um, And the first, besides my own parents, which seems like a which seems like such a softball answer, but it's really true. Uh, my parents were really simple people. They were did not go to college. They were hard workers, but they had a sense of community, a devotion to Jewish community and Jewish people. They had a sense of devotion to the larger community um, and, you know, were, were people who um, taught me not to discriminate against people of color at a very, very young age. They had, they had gay friends, they had black friends, they had Asian friends, and they were in our home. Uh, not, not particularly common in the 1960s, right? So I, um, I, I really first tribute them, and, my, and particularly their ways in which tzedakah and acts of charity and acts of uh, justice um, made an impact every day. My second teacher was uh, Rabbi James Wax, who was the senior rabbi of Temple Israel of Memphis, where I grew up. Rabbi Wax, as you'll know, but maybe your listeners don't know, was the head of the Interfaith Ministerial Association in Memphis in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. There was a sanitation strike by uh, the sanitation workers, most of whom were African-American who were black, um, there was a disparity between the white sanitation workers, the drivers of the trucks, and the black men who had to hang on in the back of the trucks, and they wanted a 10-cent raise. Uh, It was intractable strike. Rabbi Wax invited Dr. King to Memphis. 
to help settle the strike. Mm. And we all know what unfolded in that horrible April day in 1968 when Dr. King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Rabbi Wax led uh, a march down the main street to the mayor's office to demand on the day after Dr. King was assassinated and there were tanks in the streets in Memphis. His courage, his bravery, and he was he was a very dignified, scholarly, and, and usually quiet guy, not, not so outspoken from the pulpit in those years, but this transformed him and he met the moment. He met the moment in inviting Dr. King. He met the moment in the aftermath of the bloodshed, the murder of Dr. King, and I was highly impacted by him, his actions. And uh, I'll just say this, when I was a kid, my mother worked on Bill Street, the great musical Blue Street, but actually not in the music section, up the bit. And I used to have, she didn't drive, and so I used to, when I became a driver, I used to have to drive her to work every day as my dad was a salesman on the road. And I would go down and I would sit and contemplate in front of the Lorraine Motel, like, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could this happen in the city that I grew up in? How could this happen? And um, I think those things really, really affected me in my ability to then jump ahead to when I became a rabbi in the late 80s in the midst of the AIDS crisis, serving in Los Angeles as the only rabbi who would bury anybody, who would visit anybody with AIDS in the hospital, um, about needing to speak up when people couldn't speak up for themselves, just like Dr. Wax did. You're reminding me that there's a wonderful book, an anthology of the story of rabbis in the South yes. during the civil rights period. And I love the title of the book. It's Quiet Heroes. Yes. And that sometimes heroism doesn't come, you know, with a sound and light show. Sometimes it just comes in the softness of a human response, the still small voice. You know, one of the interesting things that I like about what you've done is, number one, you couldn't have known this, but your work comes during the Shloshim, the 30-day mourning period for Rabbi Harold Kushner. Yes. And I used to quip to people in 2020 that if you were to write another book, it would be when bad things happen to a good society. So your work is important and significant, and I wish you a lot of luck with it, because it's a work of public theology. In fact, yes. I'm going to go one step further. I invented a term. You can have it as a gift. Covidology. Mm. And what strikes me, and I need the two of you to respond to this, is that I don't believe that in the modern world, past pandemics, we only have really the influenza pandemic in 1918 to deal with this, have brought on this kind of theological and spiritual reflection. I mean, there have been natural disasters in the past, like the Lisbon earthquake yes. in the early 1700s. That was like a total bad day for Western civilization. It completely changed Europe forever. We don't have to even talk about that. I'm talking about sickness, right? So we're not talking the Shoah. We're not talking about the Holocaust. Have, have any other past pandemics, did AIDS do this? Did AIDS affect our theology in a way that I and many of our listeners just haven't been paying attention to? Can you teach us about that? 
Yeah, uh, if I may, um, yes, I think AIDS really did shape our theology. Um, I'm sure Rabbi Denise will probably agree. Uh, the funeral industry, for instance, has never been the same since. Um, uh, I remember right back in those uh, early days of the AIDS pandemic, and again, Rabbi and myself were some of the early peoples who would officiate memorials and funerals because most of our colleagues wouldn't, going into hospitals. Um, but it really did shape our theology as people people who had been rejected by a religion had to think about what they were going to do in their end-of-life moments um, and then what they were going to do in their, in their memorialization. Um, and funerals have never been the same since the AIDS pandemic uh, in, in, the, in its tradition. Um, I remember so many uh, gay men specifically writing their own liturgies um, as they as they died, uh, ways in which they wanted to hold their memorial services. Some some you know completely secular. Some who had a, a, a moment of transformation as they were passing and uh, started to think about their own eternity. Um, just and and secular music as part of uh, funerals that were was never never heard of um, certainly uh, in in Christian experience, um, uh, but now is commonplace um, in funerals and memorials um, all over the place. I remember writing um, for a book uh, just after the AIDS pandemic called "Daring to Speak Love's Name," um, an anthology of of liturgies uh, for LGBT people specifically. Um, and I have plenty of literature, plenty of liturgies in that book because of the AIDS pandemic. Um, and I think out of that then started the whole movement towards um, the, the, the whole movement of, of the LGBT movement in a much, much more organized way. Um, certainly, we had to found organizations that did not exist before the AIDS pandemic. Um, and, and that kind of theology uh, in the public sphere. Um, has now found its way into mainstream. Um, but it would never have been if it had not been for that AIDS pandemic, I don't think. You know, you're making me think about something here, Reverend Thomas, which is that it's still too soon, but we have yet to see any trickle down in popular culture as a result and response to the COVID pandemic. I mean, Sting recorded a song years ago, Don't Stand So Close to Me. Sorry, bad joke. But the fact of the matter is that we haven't seen it yet. Though in Israeli popular culture, there are several Israeli rock songs that came out in the spring of 2020, which were responses to COVID, which are just devastating pieces of work. Rabbi Egger, can you weigh in on this COVIDology yeah, thing? Yeah, I, I do think, I do think there is, I think we're still in the midst of it, despite uh, declarations that the emergency is over. Uh, we, we, we haven't, we haven't finished COVID yet. Uh, we, we, we're going to see, uh, and as the year of 2023 goes on, we're going to see different strains emerge. We're going to see another, we might not be in lockdown anymore, but we are going to see things. So we, it's hard when you're in the midst of an emergency or a crisis to um, do the thinking and have the space. And I mean, you know, I think you know this, Rabbi Sulkin, in terms of uh, the Shoah, in terms of the Holocaust, like, you know, in the immediate aftermath of those years, it was still a time for survival of the survivors, right? Uh, and and we in the Jewish community didn't really grapple with the magnitude of the Shoah and Holocaust studies programs and lectures and, uh, you know, many books till the seven, late 70s, really? And so I think we're, we don't have the distance yet. Um, and that's why I think our, our book about 
uh, Seven Principles for Living Bravely, where we had the time to reflect on the height of the AIDS crisis and what we were being triggered about during COVID. For those of us that served and ministered during the height of the AIDS pandemic, um, we're able to talk about in this book. And I think that that that's a it's a beginning. It's a beginning doorway to have people think about their responses in the world and how they navigate such difficulties that we're all still reacting to. We're all still triggered. You know, it's amazing to me. I started my current congregation, from which I am also retiring uh, in several weeks, as the interim rabbi three years ago. I was hired during COVID. All my first services were on screen. I had to learn how to do PowerPoint. I had to learn how to do Zoom. And by the way, there's a very interesting trend. Uh, Rabbi Egger, I don't know if you are aware of this, but someone told me just a few weeks ago that there's a disquieting trend that a number of rabbis who were engaged during COVID are not having their contracts renewed. Yes. Do you know about this? Yes, I do know about this. Can you can we say more about this? Because I want to drill down. I want to hear that word ministry. I want to hear how this has affected your ministry. I want to hear how this has affected religious institutions because the book is still being written. What is it about uh, about clergy who were engaged during COVID and was it a failure to launch or was it a failure to be at at attached? What's going on here? Rabbi Ever. Egger, you want to talk about well, that? Well, I, I, do, I, do th I don't think it's just a failure to launch. I, I don't want to actually blame the clergy people. I don't no, think no, that, no, no, no. Certainly not. Anyway, no. In any way. No, no I, blame. No blame. I think, <laughs> I, 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 I think this is part of the trauma that is unaddressed in group settings, the trauma of being – when you're used to being in community in, in real life, IRL as we say, in touch with people weekly in a worship service or in a study circle or in those kinds of things, and then you have to stop and everybody had to withdraw. And you – like Reverend Thomas was no different for his church, having to pivot online and PowerPoints and the same things, learning to use Zoom and how we wouldn't be Zoom bombed and all of the things that we all – the clergy had to manage during those times. Um, that that effect that it had not only on the clergy, but on the leadership of congregations and communities and on the people in the pews that were now sitting in their living room sofas, maybe, or in their beds, watching on an iPad or participating through an iPad or a phone. Um, I These are still, these are deep traumas of what community means and how we function. And so as we're trying now to figure out what the balance is between online work in religious life and being back in community and learning how to be in relationship with each other, right? That Pew study just said came out about isolation and loneliness in America. Well, think about what COVID did in that. Added to that, right? And so now we're asking people, clergy leaders, you and I and Reverend Thomas are asking people to come back into being in relationship in real life, IRL. People don't know how to do it anymore. They're so traumatized. So I, I think this is part of the reason that that there's a – it's not just a great clergy resignation like retirements like you and I, which COVID, frankly, helped push me over the edge. I started in the height of the AIDS pandemic in the late 80s. And then I went through another pandemic. It's like, okay, I'm triggered. I'm, it's enough. 
I need to breathe and think and do other things than minister to a whole community. And there's nothing wrong with my community. I love my people. I I have found this congregation that I've served so diligently and faithfully for 30 years. But I, I need a break. There's only so much trauma I can handle. So I think that you speak to this issue about relationships between the pastor, the rabbi, the minister, and it, the people who make those decisions and who are hired during COVID, I, I think, you know, they were in the right place at the right time, maybe, but now trying to navigate, what does this look like now? Everybody's still in the midst of it, even though we're not in the midst of it. So it's interesting, Rabbi Egger. So in some ways, your career, I, I've been a rabbi just for several years Longer. Longer than you have. We're not that much different in age, but just just a few years here. So your career actually starts with, forgive me, AIDS, ends with COVID. It's like these yes. twin the, pandemics were the bookends. Exactly. They were. They are bookends in my- The Genesis I, and Deuteronomy. Yes, it's exactly right. And, oh and, and Reverend Neil and I talk about this a lot, uh, about our, our, our rabbinate, my rabbinate, his ministry, about that. And, and that is part, was part of the impetus for us writing this book, uh, because we had to think about all of the skill sets that we developed and sometimes had to um, navigate without, without any mentorship in, when we were beginning our careers as clergy people navigating an AIDS crisis. I mean, nobody trained me to to be with people who were dying of AIDS who were my very a- same age, who were in my, I was in my late 20s, and I'm burying people in their late 20s. Um, you don't do that at the beginning of a rabbinic career. Most rabbis start, oh, as the youth rabbi, right? You're going to be the youth group advisor as the assistant rabbi, and you're going to teach seventh grade. And, you know, and then you go through the life cycles as you go older, right? Oh, then you start to do weddings. And then at the end of your career, because you've been with the community, you do more funerals. I started doing more funerals before I ever did a wedding. And so there's a whole thing about what is the life cycle? How does it work for those of us that are ministering? And I know Neil's, Neil is, has a similar experience because we all had gaby booms, what we call the gaby boom, right? The baby boom that happened post the height of the AIDS crisis. All our, I had a kid, my son's 30. So like we had, there was a whole group of the LGBT community that, that then had children and adopted children and Neil's a parent too. Like, so this is part of a different view of how the life cycle doesn't necessarily go from birth to death in the LGBT community. Very different. Reverend Thomas, over to you. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm just nodding my head here because, uh, you know, everything that uh, Rabbi Denise is, is sharing is so true. I and mean, I think about the uh, the ways in which we're having to relearn socialization, um, you know, the ways in which we interact with one another. There's still this distance between each other uh, that we now have this fear of one another um, and coming back into public space. Um, I have a, a kind of a, a joke here in, in Texas that red lights now are, suge- are a suggestion um, because everyone has just become so individualized um, that, that, that we failed to acknowledge how we do community anymore. Um, it's been slow. People coming back into public space. You know, theaters are reporting you know, 40, 50% of their pre-COVID audiences. Uh, churches are reporting somewhere around the same level um, of pre-COVID attendance. Uh, we have a whole slew of people who never come back into public space, that they're just worshiping online, and they're very happy with that. Um, and, and so it's, you know, there's, 
there's so much that that we're having to grapple with as as we come back. I mean, I I think this really is a five to seven year recovery period um, that we're we're all engaged in. It's how do we stay in that? That's why this book is so important because those spiritual values help us to reconnect, uh, not just only with ourselves but with others. Um, and they also confront some of the ways in which our world is so polarized right now. Um, and they confront us in a way that actually says, no, it, getting back to these spiritual principles, even if you're not a spiritual person, you know, truth, hope, uh, love, you know, all the all of those values, I believe will actually help us to heal the great divide that there is in the United States and, and in other places around the world. Um, so the book goes beyond AIDS and COVID. I think it really speaks to the, the spiritual the values of what it means to be living one with each other. And, and like you know, Rabbi Denise, you know, I started my career out and uh, pastoring a congregation and doing funerals. Um, in fact, I think it was only about uh, five years ago uh, that I finally figured out that I'd done more weddings than I had ever done funerals. I mean, that is when you think about that, um, you know, post uh, marriage equality in the in the U.S. when we you know we started doing. Or Prop 8 first, uh, before Prop 8, and then Prop 8, and then, of course, the marriage equality. When you think about how many marriages I've now done, and it's only just tipped the balance between those and the funerals that I've also been uh, involved in, specifically in the, in the AIDS pandemic. Uh, it's it's mind-boggling that we're actually still doing the work that we're doing, um, uh, that we didn't burn out sooner. And I think part of that is because we've 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 had this relationship for 21 years. It's longer than any relationship I've had. Um, you know, Rabbi Denise is often referred to as my wife, um, and I'm always grateful for that because it's a big compliment. Um, but but I do think that we have found a way um, in our traditions, with mutual respect for our traditions, to hold sacred that this is far more important than any crisis that might be happening in the world. And those values that we speak of, I think, will will benefit so many so many people wherever they are on life's journey. Can we talk about the danger of burnout mm. in clergy and in anyone in a helping profession, and how that danger became magnified, and how those dangers became multiplied since 2020? You really do a very fine job of addressing it in the pages of the book, and I'd love to talk more about the psychic price that we've all had to pay. Want to start, Rabbi Eger? Sure. I, I mean, listen, there's a tremendous psychic uh, a part. When, the, when you're facing the unknown, and COVID was an unknown, and it's still in many ways an unknown. We don't, you know, we don't know how it started. We, there's lots of questions about that. We, <laughs> we, there's lots of questions about, uh, will it come back? Will we have to go to lockdown again? You don't know about the person next to you. Are they vaccinated? Are they unvaccinated? Right? There's all of these questions uh, that we are constantly having to process. And um, when you are in a helping profession, whether you're a therapist or a nurse or a doctor or a minister or a rabbi, um, you know, you, you, you're trained to listen, you're trained to pay attention to the other per person, except the mental health of a lot of people is not so good right now. And it's not so good because there's so much misinformation in the world. Scientific information is not valued. Um, there's uh, misdirection. And then there's just plain fear. The fear of getting sick, the fear of dying, the fear of 
contagion. And, we, you know, we could read the book of Leviticus, Rabbi Salkin, day in and day out, that that informs that fear, even though people don't really understand the book of Leviticus, it has, right? Um, and, and scholars greater than you and I have been trying to understand it for, for centuries. So um, I think these are, these add to uh, to our trauma. And I think for those of us in the helping professions, the sheer volume, as you read those statistics at the beginning, at the top of your show about a more than a million Americans, and listen, we're just three years in, more than a million Americans? That's like, that's an astounding figure. 6.6 million people around the world in three years, right? Like the Shoah, we say was 6 million Jews, right? In four years. We're, we're, but this is already even a shorter amount of time. So when we talk about that volume and we talk about the sheer magnitude, um, it's sometimes more than a soul can bear. And if you don't have the spiritual grounding to think about how things could get better and what you can do to make the world a better place, as you said, that group of nuns grew, N-O-N-E-S, in just a short period of time, uh, people are really struggling and at a loss. So I think it I think we have to um, do whatever we can to support those in the helping professions because they're doing they're doing heroes work, heroes work. Reverend Thomas, what's it like for you? Um, very similar. I mean, I think that the spiritual values have really helped to sustain me in in, in all of these years. But I also acknowledge um, that there is you know some survivor guilt out there um, in the ways in which we have not been able to have the time to process grief. You know, the world is moving at such a fast space all the time. Um, you know, I, I know there are folks from the AIDS pandemic who you know survived because of ACT and then other other medications. Um, who have never been able to grieve properly um, and who are living in this kind of survivor guilt experience that why did I survive and others didn't? And I think we're going to find that in the in, the, in this kind of COVID area um, of members of families, um, one who got COVID one uh, and survived, one who didn't, um, and how that is going to f- uh, add to the trauma um, and fear and, 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 and all that's going to come in the years to come. And I think... It's, we, we need to prepare ourselves because in the same way as I see that survivor guilt in, in gay men and, and in others, we're going to see it now in families um, in, in, in different ways, perhaps, but it's still going to be there. And those of us who you know, are, are, are counselors, therapists, nurses, doctors, all of us who went through uh, this period helping and encouraging one another are going to take that on as another level of, of grief and loss uh, that's, that's, that is in the living moment rather than in the the grieving moment so i you know we're right we're not we're nowhere near the end of this um and i think it's we we need to be prepared for what what's going to happen in the future we'll be right back I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. 
The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We are back. Welcome back to Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. I am the rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. Just to remind you all that you can follow all of our podcasts and you can follow my column regularly, which comes out several times a week. I have no unpublished thoughts on religionnews.com. Very happy to have two very important guests with us, uh, Rabbi Denise Egger, Reverend Dr. Neil G. Thomas, talking about their new baby, their newly published book, Seven Principles for Living Bravely, Ageless Wisdom and Comforting Faith for Weathering Life's Most Difficult Times. And we have been in the mother of difficult times over the last several years. Before the break, we were talking about the trauma of survivor guilt. Uh, can you teach us what our rabbi, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, <laughs> teaches us about the stages of grief. And here's what I want to ask you. We're well aware, number one, that the stages of grief are, are pretty famous. Number two, people who are smart know that those stages of grief don't always come in the order that most right. people know them in. And number three, people who are really smart, like the two of you, know that there is no guarantee whatsoever, that once you've finished one stage of grief, that you're not going to get into a moral and emotional existential cul-de-sac and do a U-turn and come right back into that. And here's the other thing. It's not only individuals who go through these stages. Society. It's, a, it's society as well. So right. I want to talk about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, our Rebbe, our Rabbi, what she teaches us and what we can glean from her wisdom that might make our lives better. Please raise your hand. I'll call on you. Yeah. <laughs> Reverend Thomas. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, th I think you're, you're, you're hitting on something, uh, Rabbi Salkin, uh, of, of what, what I think is in store for us um, is how do we do this corporate grieving? I think, you know, congregations and places of worship can help that. I think theater can help that. I think that um, music can help that. I think there are lots of things that we can tap into uh, that will help us in that process in, 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 in our grief. But I also am very much aware that, that we don't give time for any of that stuff just between life's pressures. I mean, here we are in 2023, um, 199 mass shootings in the United States, more than one a day. We're numb. Um, we're numb. We're absolutely numb. And a legislative process that is you know, taking rights away, left, right, and center from some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Tell me about it. I um, live in Florida. Absolutely. Florida, I mean, is, Florida is Texas, but with better shopping malls. I absolutely agree with you, um, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but that that is where we're at, and we are we are we are numb. Uh, we don't know how to respond. We don't know how to live in community anymore. Uh, spiritual leaders are struggling. They're, they're leaving the profession left, right, and center because we were not equipped for this work. Um, seminaries do not teach teach us what we need to do in parish life. Um, and, and so it's, and I don't want to be demoralizing because in the midst of that, I have great joy and great hope. And I know that the, the future is there for us. Um, but we are living in a numb world. 
and uh, just struggling to get through one day at a time. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the stages of grief, of course, will help us, but when we don't have time to process them. You know, it's amazing to me. I, I, I have to check this out with Rabbi Egger, but both, with both of you, I have this, this bugabear, this thing that makes me crazy. Have you noticed that no one likes to say the word die anymore? Right. They it's, just passed. It's, they've passed. They passed on. They've passed. They're in a better place. Where so? What is that? Boca Raton. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the the euphemisms are. No one can say death anymore, and this business like we're having a celebration of life. You know, when I die, I want my kids to be catatonic with grief. Uh, can we talk about you know Ernest Becker? Right, the book, The Denial, Denial. of Death. Right. It's it's like. It's like the, the denial stage of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has become nationalized, globalized. Can we talk about this inability to talk about death? And I would have thought, I predicted I was wrong. Many times I've been wrong. I'm proud of the times I've been wrong. I thought in March 2020 that we'd be more comfortable using the D word, died. She died of COVID. Okay, But no, she passed. She's gone. Can we talk about that as a, as a religious issue? Am I wrong here? No, I think you're exactly right. This has been, and this this was happening pre-COVID, and this was certainly happening for our experience during the AIDS crisis. Nobody died. That's where, where do you think celebrations of life got their start? Oh, no. There, this, you know, this is, this came out of the gay men not wanting to deal with that, oh, yet the rest of their address book, you remember those? We used to have address books. Okay. The rest of their address books, they would just line out all of their friendship circles and they had to make all new friends. So that denial that was, we experienced during the height of the AIDS crisis that created celebrations of life um, is very much real now because no one has the tools to learn to grieve and they don't have the space and you're not allowed to express your sadness in a society that demands everyone be happy all the time. Because if you don't put up something positive on your Facebook or Instagram page, then nobody can deal with you, right? You can't have complexity of feelings. You can't have complexity uh, in your emotional responses. Uh, and we are suffering for it. We are suffering greatly as a society. You're making me think about something here, which by the way, you frequently do. So it's all good. Everyone talks about sex education in schools, which we need. Maybe we need, are you ready? Maybe we need grief education. Yes. Yes. I yeah. see you nodding your head, Reverend Thomas. Yeah. No, I think we do. I mean, I think grief is, is a natural part of our lives. It's a, it's a, and it's not just about death. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of things that we grieve um, in, in, in our lives. We, we grieve you know, animals. We grieve um, jobs. We grieve, you know, all sorts of things, relationships that fall apart. We, we, we have lots and lots of grief um, that piles up one on on top of the other, and you know, I've often said at, at funeral services that you know, when when I'm when when a congregation's in front of me, we're not just grieving the person that we're there for; we're grieving everything else all at the same time, um, and the, 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 we bring all of that into that sacred space. 
And it's important for us to grieve. It's important for us to acknowledge that there is a there is an ending to something that we have lost something that we are we are in the midst of grief. I mean, it's one of the great things about the Jewish tradition, you know, you know that grief period lasting for uh, for for a year, if I'm correct. Um, uh, uh, that, that that there is this period of time that we expect people to grieve, and there's nothing wrong with grief um, because loss is true. So, do we need? Do you see the need for? Do you see the opportunity for a national ritualized way to remember? Do we need a Yom HaShoah, a Holocaust Memorial Day for COVID, realizing that America is not good at this? This is not our strong suit. Do we need this? I talk about this in the first chapter that I wrote about on mourning, um, that, you know, like during COVID, there was a national day of couple national days of prayer one but it was too early on it wasn't universally observed even though it was declared by the president Um, but we we need we need memorials for people who die this is why like when the oklahoma city bombing of the federal building happened and there's a just a striking memorial with the chairs dedicated to everybody or when you go and look at holocaust memorials you go to budapest and you see the shoes on the river danube for that massacre when the jews were just pushed and shot and pushed into the river these memorials help us express uh, our collective grief our collective sadness and we need that through art, through memorials, through national rituals. Why on 9-11 is it so important when they go back to the 9-11 memorial now where the Twin Towers are and they ring the bell and they read the names aloud? Why? It's not just for the families. This is for our nation. These are important things that we need to figure out. It will help our souls, it will help our psyches, it will help our society to be able to express these things uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, But we're not there yet. Instead, we just declare the emergency over. Uh, People pushed out of their homes and suffering because eviction orders were lifted, Um, food stamps rolled back, uh, and we're adding to the suffering and the crisis that are experienced because of COVID. It's not always just a health physical health crisis, uh, a respiratory and flu-like disease, there are concomitant things that circle around it as well. Reverend Thomas, I promised I wanted to get back to you on this uh, issue of psychogeography. Uh, So you serve a a major LGBTQ outreach religious center in a a very red state, but arguably, by the way, I, I, I think it is actually true that most of America is purple. I think most cities are blue. Most inner suburbs are blue. And the further you get from an urban center, no matter where you are, it gets red. It's really, really interesting, right? So granted that Dallas is probably bluer than many places in Texas, what's this experience been like for you? I just want to shift focus a little bit to how has... How has the place challenged you? That's a, a really interesting question, uh, Robert Salkin. Um, you know, D- Dallas is a, is a blue bubble, um, uh, as, a, as are some of the other metropolitan areas in the Texas um, community. Um, one of the things that was interesting for me is that we've actually come back uh, into in-person worship much quicker and higher numbers than we anticipated. 
Um, Pre-COVID, we were about 1,100 on a Sunday morning. Uh, Post-COVID, right now, we're averaging about 800 on a Sunday morning, um, which is about 70% of our pre-COVID numbers, which is actually higher than the national statistic. Um, What we've also discovered um, in the midst of all of this is that we have a a large number who who will not re-enter the building just because they're happy online. But we've we've been discovering a lot of... um, straight families, um, queer, I call them queer families because they, they identify somewhere on that queer spectrum, um, who are leaving more evangelical Christianity um, because of the red Christian nationalism um, and are seeking out, because they're not ready to give up their faith, but they're seeking out more progressive communities uh, where they can actually get into that curious space um, uh, about deconstructing their faith and then finding a way to reconstruct it in a way that's, um, I would say, more appropriate. Uh, but they're leaving um, it, you know, Christian spiritual, uh, the fundamentalist wing of the Christian church in much, much higher numbers than they're actually entering in. And that's that's across the United States. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who, are, who have just given up completely. But in the South, we're not at that space. Um, we're still, I always tell the difference uh, when I was, I joke with Rabbi Denise that in LA, you have a whole list of things you can do. And then of course there's church on Sunday. Um, in the South, you do church and then there's a whole list of other things that you get to do afterwards. So that the, you know, the priority is to, to attention and even for LGBTQ people, um, church is still very, very important. Um, and so I'm grateful that we created this space. But we found even in our space, we've had to relearn socialization. We've had to relearn the ways in which we do community together. Um, and so I just think it's, it's, it's just an interesting period that we're working through. And, you know, let's be honest, we're learning by the seat of our pants um, as, as we, we navigate this new way of doing things and being. It reminds me of the story of Yavna about how yeah. after the yes. temple was destroyed by the Romans, the sages, literally by the seat of their pants or their togas or their robes, they had to reinvent how to do Judaism. They had to basically start almost from the very beginning. And Rabbi Egger and I are their heirs and heiresses. We are, we're their inheritors. We're their colleagues. We, we're building on the foundation that they built on top of ashes, which is what our society is going to have to do. We'll be right back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're back again with Martini Judaism. I want to end on the following note. I mentioned at the very beginning of our time together that American popular culture has yet to really develop 
any kind of meaningful response, any kind of text, any kind of artistic tradition that has emerged out of COVID, I'm proud to say, proud, I don't know, I'm, I'm just putting it out there, that in Israel, it was almost immediate. And I, I want to share the lyrics of a song that came out a week after COVID became real. I'm talking about the end of March. The artist is Hanan Ben Ari, and the song is called Longing for People. And this accompanied a video, and Rabbi Edgar, maybe you saw it, of an empty Jerusalem, empty parks, empty Tel Aviv. We thought we'd already won it all. We made buildings that reached the sky. Who needs people? Another flood won't come nowadays. We will never, ever fall. We'll be fine on our own, wise, correct, and just, and nothing is above us. Until you came along and infected us and drove us mad and confined us and confused us and frightened us. Who are you? How you've brought back the sanity, longing for other humans. The loneliness aches suddenly. We no longer fly from here to there. All the parks are closed. Weddings are almost empty. We've almost lost ourselves. We've almost stopped feeling. Soon this would all end. And I'm asking you, if I may, that on the morning after you leave, will we be the same again? The singer is talking to COVID, personalized, a personification, an anthropomorphization, as it were, of COVID. Will we be the same again? I want to thank our guests, Rabbi Denise Egger, the Reverend Dr. Neil G. Thomas, their new book just coming out. You'll love it. Seven Principles for Living Bravely, Ageless Wisdom, and Comforting Faith for Weathering Life's Most Difficult Times. It's a long title, but the message is very simple, that our faith traditions hand us scrolls, sacred books of resilience. And that's what we need to do. And Rabbi Egger, you and I have something in common. We're, we're sailing off, not into the sunset, but into other projects. And you're making a geographic move as well, right? I am making a geographic move as well. So I wish you, uh, as we say, b'chatzlacha, great success. And, and uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just not the day-to-day of, of the rabbinate and a congregation, but we're, as you know, we're always rabbis and teachers. And I know you're such a great scholar, Rabbi Sulkin, well, and teacher. And I look forward to learning with you for many years to come. I said to a mutual friend of ours recently, they went and changed the profession on us, and they didn't even have the courtesy to tell, tell us. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and COVID is an example of that, right? Uh, Reverend Thomas, let's give you a last word. Give us your Deuteronomy. Oh, no, I've, I've still got a little bit more to do. Um, I'm, uh, I'm probably about another 10 years before I get to uh, sun, sunset myself, um, or unless they fire me before. Um, but uh, I'm just looking forward to uh, Rabbi Denise being in, in my part of the world. Um, and uh, being able to reconnect uh, 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 over and over again. And uh, this is not the, the last that we're going to be doing together. Oh, um, no, I can imagine this is the beginning of a whole new friendship. A whole new chapter. Whole yeah. new chapter. So, Rabbi Edgar, thank you so much. Thank you for being and, with us and letting us be here with you. 
And Reverend Thomas, thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you so much. I always love, love hanging out with my, my Jewish friends. Well, I hope that our paths will cross. Listen, folks, um, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, the podcast, it's available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, be nice, be kind, help us out. Download our podcast, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for hanging out with us. It's always fun, always good, always meaningful. We'll see you again soon. Shalom, everyone. <laughs>